When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode of SFF Yeah! is sponsored by Book Riot Insiders, the digital bookish resource and hangout spot for readers. Enrich your reading life with our Book Riot Insiders perks. We've got three levels to insiders, short story, novel, and the epic level. And you can try any level out for free for two weeks. For podcast lovers, meaning you, insiders at the novel and epic level get access to two exclusive shows, the Read Harder podcast, which gives recommendations for the Read Harder challenge task by task, and Book Riot Remix, where we randomly pair up hosts from across our shows to talk about, well, whatever they want. Insiders also get exclusive access to bookish deals, behind-the-scenes newsletters, our new release index, the Epic Book Club, and more. Sign up for your free trial at insiders.bookriot.com. Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 107, and we're recording on June 25th. I'm Sharif Williams, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. And today, we are talking about LGBTQ plus in SFF in honor of Pride Month. It is very exciting. I got to read a lot of great books, um, and I'm really excited to talk about them. Yeah, I am also extremely happy to be recording this episode and also to have had the problem I had, which was it was really hard to narrow down because there's so (laughs) much great queer sci-fi fantasy out there that it's just like, oh my gosh, how do I pick? Which is the kind of problem I like to have personally. Yeah, we've been putting out a ton of lists for, I mean, we do all the time, but especially for Pride Month. And I uh, was a little overwhelmed by how many books (laughs) I wanted to read, like just from editing those posts. I was like, wow, there are so many that are just coming out, even just this year and last year. It's, It's amazing and wonderful and beautiful to see. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Before we really get into it, I do want to say that I am in the grips of a really intense allergy day. So I apologize in advance, both to our sound editor and to the (laughs) listeners for any things that might... (laughs) Side effects of allergies. Yeah, noises. I'm going to try my best, though. I'm going to try. We're here for you. Thanks. It's it's like it's beautiful outside and the plants are all blooming and they're so happy and it's I love them but also they make me miserable. <laughs> that is real and fair. Yeah. Uh let's see. Okay, so before we get into our news and then our book picks, let me tell you all about our first sponsor, which is for a book that I am now extremely excited about. It's called Bacchanal by Victoria G. Henry. 
Abandoned by her family, alone on the wrong side of the color line with little to call her own, Eliza Meeks is coming to terms with what she does have. It's a gift for communicating with animals. And the Bacchanal Carnival is Eliza's ticket out of Baton Rouge. But an ancient demon hides there, too, behind an iridescent disguise. She feeds on innocent souls. And she's met her match in Eliza, who's only just beginning to understand her burgeoning powers. Rolling across a consuming Dust Bowl landscape, Eliza may have found her destiny. So as you might have gathered from that description, this is a historical fantasy set in the Depression-era South, with a black main character who joins a magical carnival. Like, I could not be more interested in this book personally. These are all things that I I think sound amazing. And this is a debut novel, always an exciting thing to see. And it's been blurbed by Gwenda Bond, whose name you have probably heard. Uh, And Bond says readers won't want their travels with the seductive and dangerous Bacchanal Carnival to end. So extremely wheelhouse book for me, I think probably for a lot of y'all. Again, that's Bacchanal by Veronica G. Henry. Sounds super cool. Love those carnival books. Yeah, I love a carnival. I do, too. They're creepy and fun. Right, exactly. I don't ever want to go to one, but I love to read about them. <laughs> All right, let's see. News. It's time for some news. Uh, let's start off with this short list, The Kitchies, which is one of my favorite sort of weird little awards lists. I mean, I don't know yeah. how little they actually are, but they're sort of a fringe. Let's call them fringe. That's a good word. Uh, and they, uh, the Kitchies are awarded for the year's most progressive, intelligent, and entertaining fiction that contain elements of the speculative or fantastic. And their 2020 shortlist has been announced. And there are some unsurprising nominations here. We've got Piranesi by Susanna Clark. We've got City We Became by N.K. Jemison. Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Let's see, what else have we talked about? Oh, Space Between Worlds by Micaiah yeah. Johnson. It's nice to see Sharks in the Time of Saviors by Kawhi Strong Washburn on here, because I actually haven't seen that one pop up on too many SFF lists, even though it is sort of a fabulous tale. So I'm excited Mm. to see that one getting some genre awards love. And then there are a bunch of titles on here that I don't know, possibly because this is a British award and some of these books are just maybe haven't made it as big over here as they have in the UK. So yeah, I, uh, I always love to see the kitschy shortlist come out and I now have some more reading to do. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. This is always like a fun one. It's kind of like the the punk version yeah. of like the awards really cool and I always feel like there there's some gems here and it is really interesting to see lists that aren't like reflective of only like U.S. reading mm-hmm. and what's on the shelves right now in the states um so I really am interested in seeing what what makes it on the short list and what gets the finalists um in this list and I love that the space between worlds is on here because I know that was a favorite for both of us. Yes. Uh, and yeah, uh, much luck to everybody on the short list and I can't wait to see who gets awarded. Mm-hmm. Well, I have, I guess I'll start with this really interesting NPR poll 
And this poll, it's like it is a simple poll to find out what science fiction and fantasy readers have enjoyed. But I thought it was really interesting in a sort of, yeah, this is how things don't work well all the time way. <laughs> <laughs> because they they revised this polling system. So the last time they did this sort of reader poll was in 2011. And so they're revisiting that poll of favorite science fiction and fantasy books. And it sounds like the reason they're revisiting it is because there were some huge gaps from that poll in terms of race and gender, which is, I think, for anybody who has either read a bunch of reader polls um, With science fiction and fantasy and across other genres as well, like this isn't news that Mm. a lot of the time you end up with these like what people think of as like the canon of a genre or of literature where you just end up with a lot of Lord of the Rings and like a lot of um, books by white men. Mm -hmm. And so they address this in the introduction to this new poll and made a, a specific apology to Octavia Butler fans <laughs> and said that they plan to address that with a supplement to the first list. Uh, and they so now they're zeroing in on titles from the past 10 years, specifically science fiction and fantasy titles from the past 10 years. So anything that's come out since the last poll in 2011, there can't be repeats of titles from the 2011 poll, but there could be repeats of authors. And there is going to be a panel of judges who are taking nominations and curating a final list of 50 titles rather than 100. And I just wanted to bring this to our listeners' attention specifically as well, because I know a lot of you read very widely and are very conscious about the types of books you read and the types of authors you pick up and making sure you're reading broadly and diversely. And so if you are interested in casting your vote for, I don't even, I truly cannot, like thinking about what I would choose from the last 10 years, (laughs) like makes my brain kind of spin. But I think if pressed, I could come up with something. But if you have something you want to nominate to make this list, you absolutely should. We'll include a link to the poll. Um, And yeah, you can nominate any book that was published after 2011 as long as the title wasn't on that list. Um, And it can include novellas and short story collections. You all know how much I love a novella. And they do consider series books as a single entry. So you have five choices. And I'm really excited to see what ends up on this list of 50. And I hope everybody casts a vote so that it's it's a lot different than the 2011 list. <laughs> yeah, I I think this is super interesting. Also, Before I get into some of those thoughts, I just want to say that 
I saw this that you had put it on the list and I clicked on it and I immediately was like, oh, I have to nominate right now. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I did. I, I, I did. You can get have up to five nominations. So I use all five of mine, obviously. Of <laughs> and basically what I ended up doing was picking my favorite sci-fi or fantasy book from my reading spreadsheet over the last five years because that that is how many choices I had. And I was like, well, I might as well put a little more weight on the more recent stuff and and yeah. it was a lot of fun, although, yes, I spent some t- real time agonizing over that <laughs> because there's been so much good stuff. But but it was, I, it was a lot of fun to to think about what I wanted to nominate. And then I as like a editorial perspective, I think this is a mm-hmm. super interesting way to approach reader polls, because it's like you said, I we've seen this on on Book Riot. We've seen it everywhere else we see it every year with the goodreads reader choice awards like people it's it just it's the vast majority of the internet and you just don't get necessarily the amount of range and diversity and inclusion that you want in these kinds of polls and so i think a limiting it to the last 10 years is super interesting and b curating it once everybody has submitted, they're knocking it down from like they usually would do 100, but they're going to curate a final list of 50 titles. I think that's a really interesting way to like approach it, whereas all of the nominations are coming from the public, but editorial has a chance to curate the list a little bit so that, for example, you don't end up without Octavia Butler on a list of the all-time favorite science fiction and fantasy. Like, that's a huge, huge oversight (laughs) on everybody's part. So, (laughs) yeah. So I think this is, I like this approach. I mean, I don't think it's by any means the only approach to doing this kind of poll, but I think it's an interesting one. And I'm super curious to see what the results are. I do wish they said how long this was going to be open for. I've been poking at it and I can't find a close date for it. So we'll just have to keep an eye on it. Um, Like it doesn't say anywhere how long you have to nominate. So go sooner rather than later because we do not know when this is going to close. They're like, oh, my goodness, we have 50 million nominations <laughs> we we can't <laughs> i send all the coffee to the panel of judges that's right whoever you are <laughs> that's right yes lots of sympathy professional sympathy for for the yeah. for the herculean task that narrowing this down will be uh let's see all right so I want to talk about this is a little bit inside baseball, and it's also a developing story. So just as a reminder, we're recording this on Friday, June 25th. It's entirely possible that more information or clarity will come out around this next news item uh, that obviously I can't know because I cannot see into the future. But (laughs) there's something strange going on with the Hugo Awards. The initial news item that happened very recently uh, on June 22nd is that the 2021 Hugo administration team resigned in mass from this year's Discon 3, which is where the uh, Hugo Awards would be announced and, you know. It's like literally everyone on the team resigned together. And it's a kind of a vague statement. 
I'm looking at the File 770 uh, write-up by Mike Glier, who has a screenshot of the tweet, which says, among other things, it's clear that we have taken the process as far as we can and that our input is no longer needed by the convention leadership. We are therefore resigning from Discon 3 with immediate effect, which is like quite a thing to say, like that you are the Hugo administration team and your input is no longer needed by the convention leadership. Like that's, that's a head scratcher. And, you know, there's, it hasn't been addressed yet by anybody uh, else. And this is actually the second team of Hugo administrators to quit this year, which I didn't realize. And so that's like does not speak well to whatever's going on over there. And I I did a dive in to try to figure out what exactly is going on, because there were some references to the way that Hugo nomination um, listees were counted. And I was trying to understand more about it. And I did find a Reddit thread discussing it. That implied that there are there are some rule changes slash old rules that have been highly controversial internally about how many collaborators on a single nomination can be listed and can show up to the awards and can have their name on the award. So uh, there's a Reddit thread that dives into this that I'm going to link to. And one of the Reddit commenters, Wordhead, commented that, like, for example, Strange Horizons, which has been shortlisted, uh, that would be 87 people. So, like, how do you honor 87 people who have been nominated for award? Which is, I mean, a very legit logistical question. Yeah. But apparently the issue and controversy comes around the rules that they have tried to put into place that a lot of folks are taking issue with or are feeling are not equitable uh, or in the interests of the nominees. So again, this is this is still like shrouded in some confusion. And I don't I don't want to like make any pronouncements here, but I have some worries about <laughs> what's going to happen with the awards this year, which makes me sad because the Hugos are a huge cornerstone in sci-fi fantasy. They're incredibly important for careers. They, I mean, sci-fi fantasy authors have said that these can make a career. And so I would hate to see, you know them not get awarded because of what are seem to be logistical issues but i also think equity and inclusion is super important so it it seems like a very tricky situation and i will be keeping an eye on what's going on yeah uh if you saw my face right now i'd have a big (laughs) question mark slapped across it because (laughs) i was like reading this and it you're right. It's like very cryptic. Um, and it does sound like I'm really glad this isn't a logistical problem I have to solve mm. because I don't know how I would. Um, and I have literally been looking at this for like all of 20 minutes. So <laughs> that probably explains that. But it is it is tricky. And I agree with you. Like, I am curious about what will happen. And I do hope that a solution comes out of this and that we can have the Hugos. So we'll see what happens. And if 
this stops being such a head scratcher because yeah. <laughs> right now I'm just like, I have no clue what's happening here. Please, somebody solve it. Yeah. If if there are any updates uh, that we can link to, I will try to add those into the show notes before the episode goes live. Cool. So it, take a look at the show notes. Maybe there will be new information. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, I have a bit of pop culture news to end our news segment. And this is an update. It feels like we've been talking about this interview with a vampire series for a while. Yes. Like, and this is true because it actually says it in this uh, article from io9 reported on by Beth Elderkin. So there is an update and it is a better update than the ones we've had before. It's been a number of years since the conversation about making Anne Rice's vampire franchise into a series has been like this conversation has been going on for a while. And finally, AMC greenlit a new adaptation and it's going to be a series. And there's a lot of talk about like there's a, there's some comparisons to turning into it into a sort of franchise as big as The Walking Dead, which was so huge and uh, such a behemoth. I could never like I started watching that series and could not finish it because it was it just got too ungainly for me. Mm. So I'm curious about how they'll do that. But this is starting out as an eight part series based on Interview with a Vampire. And Anne Rice is involved, Anne and Christopher Rice are going to be executive producers of the AMC series. It's going to be helmed by Roland Jones and Jones. Um, if anybody knows, I think we've talked about this a few times before. Anne Rice was very, you know, felt very strongly about Interview with a Vampire. It felt very strongly about the film adaptation with Tom Cruise mm. and Brad Pitt in a not so great way. Yeah. Uh, so it, she's involved with the adaptation with Roland Jones, and Roland Jones made very clear that. Um, he's going to be as respectful of Anne Rice's story as possible, which will probably be uh, necessary as she is an executive producer. So it's going to start with this eight um, eight part series, and then it may turn into this much bigger franchise. They are already talking about how. There are so many other books in the series that can be adapted if this goes off well. And I could absolutely see this becoming a giant franchise, especially with a platform like AMC where they're very keen on that sort of thing. Uh, so I'm curious. There is, of course, no casting news yet. This is just the recent update that it has actually been greenlit and that it's set to launch on AMC and AMC Plus, yet another streaming platform yeah. uh, sometime in 2022. So not until next year. But yeah, that's the news. Yeah. Anne Rice is notoriously like she doesn't let anybody edit her anymore. Just as a for example, she's that's very right. committed to her own creative vision and nobody can give their input or edits to that creative vision, which I 
have a lot of feelings about, as is yes. probably obvious from my tone of voice. <laughs> so it it I would expect this to be an extremely faithful adaptation and or any changes would have to go through Anne and Christopher Rice. So that will be interesting to see how that affects what comes out. And I do think it's fascinating that AMC bought the rights to like 18 of these books. Like, oh, yeah, that's I mean, that's a lot of books to buy the rights to. (laughs) So you're right. It could become this massive franchise situation. And I'm like really surprised there's no True Blood mentions in this Write up like did, did Anne Rice decree that nobody could compare her thing to True Blood? I'm just sort I mean of maybe baffled <laughs> by the fact that like the most popular vampire, you know, adult series. I mean, I'm not including Vampire Diaries here because that was like a CW thing. Like, but you know, True Blood was like a phenomenon. How are we not comparing the two? Anyway, it doesn't matter. This is super, <laughs> this is going to be interesting. I guess is what I'm saying. This is going to be interesting. Yeah, we'll see. I'm de- I am definitely going to watch this because I I know about there is a lot that I disagree with um about Anne Rice's approach to things, but I am I used to be obsessed with Interview with a Vampire. Oh so yeah. I'm uh, there's totally no doubt. <laughs> there's no doubt. And like I was particularly the Queen of the Damned is a potential adaptation which oh, yeah. like, I still have big feelings about that movie so which I saw in the theater so I'm I'm not immune to the pull of this in any way shape <laughs> or form I just also have some side eye that's all oh yeah yeah side eye well deserved <laughs> so that's it for the news and before we start talking about our picks for today's topic I'm going to tell you about our next sponsor which is us TBR Book Riot's subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Want great new science fiction and fantasy books to read, but overwhelmed by all the publishing buzz? Let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. And sign up only takes a few minutes. You just have to answer a few questions about what you like to read and what you're looking for. Uh, link up to your Goodreads profile if you have one, and then you're done. And it's super fun. I love subscription services, so I'm I'm a sucker for that. And if you are, definitely check out mytbr.co. Okay, let's talk about our picks for this. And I see that you very astutely put in a <laughs> shout out for our fantastic newsletter. Yes. Our queerest shelves. Yeah, we just recently launched at the beginning of the month a new newsletter called Our Queerest Shelves, uh, which is written by Danica, who has been covering queer literature for, what, like a decade at this point? So long. Possibly longer. (laughs) And it's great. Highly recommend. Uh, In addition to, of course, our SFFIA 
where, excuse me, our sci-fi fantasy newsletter, Swords and Spaceships, written by the excellent Alex Axe. But if you want more specifically queer recommendations, both from sci-fi fantasy and other genres, the Our Queer Shelves newsletter is a must read. So, and like you were saying, Sharifa, we have so many posts on site. Like I, I was like, oh, there's this one that's you know, <laughs> upcoming queer fantasy novels for this year. But then I was yeah. like, oh, wait, there's like 60 bazillion more. So check out the yeah. site for more. More recommendations <laughs> can be yours. There are so many, and it's so wonderful. And I actually chose uh, my first pick because I was looking at one of these lists. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I've been meaning to read this one for so long. And I immediately ran to Hoopla, which is the library app, and found it there and was so excited and, like a horrible person, read a graphic novel on my phone. (laughs) But it was wonderful. So my fantasy pick is a standalone graphic novel, and it's Mooncakes by Suzanne Walker and Wendy Hsu. And it's so, so delightful. Mooncakes follows a young witch named Nova and a werewolf named Tam. And it has a delightful cast of side characters who are both magical and otherwise. I always feel like every time I try to come up for a non-magical name, it sounds like bad and demeaning. (laughs) So I'm just going to say otherwise, mortal, whatever. Um, And they're all facing off against this supernatural baddie. And overall, this is such a cinnamon roll of a comic with a really sweet story. It's got wonderful art and this really soothing sort of autumnal color palette that I fell in love with. So Mooncakes introduces us to Nova, who is this young witch living with her nana's and then Tam is the werewolf and also uh, Ava's, uh, Nova's lo- long-lost childhood friend who unexpectedly returns to town. And Nova works in this super cool bookshop that has a an occult or magical section. And the bookshop is owned and run by her grandmas, who are two powerful witches. So when it becomes clear that Tam, the werewolf, has returned to town to defeat a demon, she knows that they're just the family to help Tam wield their wolf magic. Even though they don't know much about wolf magic, it's, I guess, not studied that well. And so Nova and Tam also have those reunited and it feels so good feelings about (laughs) each other they're really awkward around each other they're like really close but there are moments where they're a little awkward and it's adorably transparent that they have feelings for each other and chemistry and that they sort of always have but then Tam has also been through some stuff since they left town with their family that's made them very wary about sharing their full story with Nova. So they carry this really heavy burden that might get in the way of bringing down this demon haunting Tam. And I just adored everything about Mooncakes from the great cast of characters to this bookshop, the Black Cat Bookshop, which I really, really want to exist in the real world because (laughs) the drawing, the depiction of it is so wonderful and it feels like it gives you like the rest of the story, this very like cozy, 
comfortable feeling. I think it just appeals to every reader and book lover. And then there was also this really great scene where Nova and Tam celebrate Sukkot and the Mid-Autumn Festival, and we end up meeting more of Nova's family. There's this big feast and everyone comes together, which for whatever reason is one of my favorite things about stories when there's this big coming together of a bunch of people over food. And then they learn something, we learn something about um, Nova's parents and what Nova's big struggle is. And the festival scene was just really gorgeous, made me really hungry. And also the love story between Nova and Tam was just the sweetest. The characters also share some experiences with Walker and Shu. Nova's hearing loss is based on Suzanne Walker's own disability and reflects her experiences. And like Nova and Tam, Wendy Shu is Chinese-American. And I thought that those experiences were really great on the page. There's also some really, there's some, I don't want to even say it's creepy stuff. There are like some, uh, some horror-esque elements to the story, but very, very light. There's, I think, nothing here that a middle grade and up reader cannot handle. Uh, So that's something to note. And I think it's also a great pick for most readers and features some truly cute woodland spirits that younger readers would really enjoy. So if you're looking for a sweet, romantic, queer fantasy graphic novel you can read in one sitting, I think it took me like one hour, maybe less, you should definitely check out Mooncakes. Again, that's by Wendy Shu and Suzanne Walker. I was so excited when I saw that you had put this on the agenda. I love mooncakes. I just want to co-sign everything you just said. (laughs) It is so cozy and sweet and beautifully illustrated. And it has a it has a very special place in my heart. So, yeah, Aww. big, big love for Mooncakes by Suzanne Walker and Wendy Shue. I know Wendy a little bit as well. So it's like I just have all the love for that for that book. Oh, that's lovely. That's yeah, so it's really it's great. I'm so glad you read it. Oh, yay. Yeah. All right. Let's see. OK. All right. So I should talk about my pick. Um, <laughs> I picked for my fantasy selection. A recent novella from our beloved Zen Cho. It is Order of the Pure Moon Reflected in Water. And I... This was such an interesting read. I really enjoyed it. Although I will say that there were elements that I struggled with a little bit just because I was not... Like, it it feels very lighthearted and cozy, but then every now and then... Cho throws in like a very intense moment. And so Mm -hmm. it was like, it was a ride. It was a ride, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, This is when I'll give some content warnings that characters do experience transphobia and sexual harassment. So it's not like 100% cozy or anything. Um, But it is extremely fun outside of those moments. And I think it also does this very deliberately. Like I think... Cho must have been very intentional about the way that these characters develop and how you learn what you learn about them and the situations that they face. Um, In terms of representation, it has a trans character and queer relationships. It is about a like wandering bandit 
sort of found family. It's uh, it's part of a tradition of wuxia, which is a Chinese word for martial arts fantasy. And so it's got like, you know, absolutely amazing martial arts battles. There are all of these characters who come from, you know, different traditions and they're thieves and they are trying to protect the sacred object and all kinds of shenanigans are going on. And I just loved the atmosphere of it. I have read some of the classic wuxia that this is referencing, but I think even if you haven't, it is a really cool introduction to the genre or like a return if you're already familiar. And uh, and I loved the action sequences. They were so much fun. And I just, the char- some of the characters were so unexpected and so interesting and... I don't know. Like it's it's just a really interesting novella. I I'm not giving too many details about the plot because it is short and like I don't want to spoil things because I yeah. do I do feel like this is one where the plot unfurls in such an interesting way. Like I don't want to tell you. I want you to experience it for <laughs> yourself. So there's that. And I think Cho is injecting, you know, feminism and intersectionality and a different perspective into this genre that does traditionally sideline female characters and does not have much in terms of queer representation. Uh, so, so that is very interesting and subversive, as you know, one might expect from Cho, given the other works that we've seen. So this is just, I just, yeah, it's really like I'm, words are sort of failing me here, but I, I think you should read it, especially if you like, like I said, martial arts, um, movies and traditions. I think you should read it if you like found family, if you like, you know, thief and bandit stories, which like who among us does not like that. Come on now. Yeah. Uh, and if you want some interesting representation on the page, like it hits all of those buttons. And Cho is just a great writer, always a great writer. So again, that is The Order of the Pure Moon Reflected in Water by Zen Cho. God, this sounds so interesting. I'm, I'm really curious and I can't wait to pick it up. And I have I'm going to run into a bit of the same problem because my sci-fi pick is also a novella uh, and I do not want to spoil it either. So I'm going to do my best. So uh, my pick is Finna, which is a novella by queer and trans non-binary author Nino Cipri. And Finna is, I actually don't know if I'm saying that right, because it is like a, it is a word that relates to a weird phenomenon that happens in this book. So Finna is this really fun, feelsy romp through the multiverse. And I realized that it is the second Ikea-flavored book I have read. Oh. Which is so funny. Like, it's a thing. I, I feel like it's a thing, and it makes sense. So by that, I mean that the setting is a store That is almost immediately, like, I think by the second page, I was like, oh, this is Ikea. So it's almost immediately recognizable as Ikea. And it's described in these truly hilarious and very accurate ways. So we meet Ava at this store. Um, The store is called Littenvarld. And we learn that she's having a hard time 
she's fresh from a really difficult breakup. And she's been trying her best to avoid her ex, Jules, who also happens to be her coworker at the store. But of course, she ends up finding herself on their same shift. So they're at Littenvarld in this hilariously named room that I won't spoil because I laughed out loud when <laughs> I read it. When this phenomenon occurs, a wormhole ends up ap- appearing on the showroom floor. And even worse, it, it already claimed one victim in the form of a Littenvarld customer. So there's the worst management at Littenvarld. And thanks to the management, Ava and Jules are recruited to, tra- to traverse the multiverse in search of this customer. And then they stumble through all sorts of versions of Littenvarld. They have a bunch of mishaps. They meet some really nightmarish and also some impressive people and creatures along the way. And so at the heart of the story, so that I'm not spoiling what actually happens, is Ava and Jules' relationship. So from their very first interaction on the page, it's really clear that they're both raw from this recent breakup. They don't know how to act around each other. And they have these really uncomfortable interactions that made me like, oh, just like, stop talking to each other. (laughs) Stop. Uh, (laughs) So that depiction and also the ways Jules and Ava navigate each other as this multiverse tests their courage and their instincts um, and pulls them through the story were really compelling because they felt so real and their experiences were so relatable, even in this truly unreal circumstance. I think anyone who's been through a breakup with someone they still love and care about will probably see their own experiences mirrored back in a really uncomfortable way. And they both have their baggage and their hangups and their weaknesses. And the story is mainly told from Ava's perspective. And while she really focuses in on Jules's chaotic side and all the reasons why she had to break up with them, she's also hyper aware of how she's contributed to this really sort of volatile, codependent relationship. And the multiverse scenario forces the two of them to face each other and to work together. And it's clear that they care about each other, but it's also clear that they really don't always do a great job of showing it. And both of them have stuff to deal with outside of their relationship, like Ava has anxiety and depression, and Jules is constantly being misgendered at their job and is generally misunderstood because of their approach to the world and how to do things in general. So on top of these really great characters, there are so many more components to this book that make it really fun and interesting. There are weird worlds with these murderous sheeple. There are blood-sucking monsters, steampunk warriors, and just a lot more. It's this really fun, anti-capitalist adventure sci-fi with a lot of heart. So yeah, I loved it. I felt like a little choked up at the end and it was great. So definitely check out Finna. Again, that's by Nino Cipri. That sounds like one of those novellas that's much bigger on the inside. 
Yes. I don't know how all of that got fit into that little book. <laughs> it was it was wild. I was very impressed. Well, I look forward to reading that one. Yeah. Uh, my sci-fi pick is interesting because I so I don't read a lot of military sci-fi anymore for what are perhaps obvious reasons, including a strong discomfort with romanticization of the military-industrial complex. So it is very rare for me to pick a military sci-fi book to talk about, but I couldn't not pick this one, both because I was trying to pick stuff we haven't talked about before on the show and because it's such an interesting approach. So my sci-fi pick is A Pale Light in the Black by KB Wagers, who is a non-binary author, And this is the first book in the Neo G series. The second book is actually out as well now called Hold Fast to the Fire, which I haven't read yet, but I do plan to. And this is such a fascinating series because it's sort of like a murder bot slash, you know, wayfarers style vibe. Like you have this like very found family, a little bit like cozy sci-fi. It's much more character focused, but it takes place in the context of this Neo-G military force, which is the near-Earth orbital guard. It's like the Space Coast Guard is how they describe it. And so one of our characters, Maxine, who's pretty much the main narrator, although we do get a couple other perspectives, has been trying to get into the Neo-G for years. She comes from a military family, but they're like very sort of high-ranking military family historically. So they did not want her to join what they consider a subpar, you know, force, as it were. Like she's been groomed for like to be a very high up, you know, fancy schmancy, whatever, which she has zero interest in. Like all she wants to do is be part of a regular crew for the Neo-G and like has worked extremely hard to make that happen. And she finally gets this position, but everybody knows who her family is. And so there's a lot of questions about, like, why she's there, how people are going to respond to her. She has to prove herself in this command because the person whose spot uh, she has moved into, they have been, you know, transferred and promoted, I believe. And they're very big shoes to fill. So she's a lot to prove in a lot of different ways. On top of which... There are these annual, like, games between the different forces, and it's a big deal to be part of a team that's going to compete in these games. And, you know, she wants to prove herself there as well and help her team to finish well and, like, you know, defend the honor of the Neo-G in these, like, competitive situations. And then also somebody's, like, trying to kill her and her team, so that's that's a problem. (laughs) We have many problems here. Uh, And I loved this cast. There is so much representation here. We've got a wide range of sexuality and gender identity. We've been like including asexuality and polyamory. Um, There's a wide range of ethnic and racial backgrounds. And everything is very normalized. Like the the problems that they're having are not related to identity in those senses for the large part, which is very restful in a lot of ways. And 
I thought the character relationships were really well done. And I think one way that this is different from a lot of other military sci-fi that that I've read, and I I can say this is true for the first book. I have no idea what happens in the second book. But in this first book, it's not a war situation. Like, they're not at war with, like, an alien race or another planet or whatever. Like, there's not—it's not that kind of, like, space opera battle situation. These are, you know— a different kind of conflict situation. And maybe that helps a little bit for me as a reader. I don't know. But it was interesting. It's a really interesting reading experience. I read it on a vacation, and it felt exactly right for that. It was distracting. It was escapist in a really interesting way. It's a page turner. And I think that Wagers is exploring some really cool, interesting, like future tech developments. I'm not going to get into any more detail because it's a big spoiler but there's some really interesting technology uh, as part of the conflict here that I loved seeing somebody play with those ideas as well Um, and again really like if you are just kind of desperate for that space found family feeling this absolutely will give you that Plus, like, almost everybody's queer. So, (laughs) bonus. Uh, So, again, that's A Pale Light in the Black, the first in the Neo G series by KB Wagers. Ugh, so great. So many fantastic books. Oh, wait, I forgot to give a content warning because I just didn't touch on this at all. Yes, so uh, there are, I want to give a content warning for Maxine's parents who are emotionally abusive, and you see some of that play out both in terms of uh, Maxine's character development and some flashbacks. So just FYI. Well, we got our content warnings out. We didn't spoil anything, and <laughs> we got to celebrate Pride on this show. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, SFF Yeah is sound edited by Dr. Baker. Many thanks to them for making us sound great each and every episode. Uh, for more recs, you can check us out at bookriot.com. You can find our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. And sorry if you check out all of our LGBTQ plus content because your TBR is going to explode. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to us. You can email us at sffyeah at bookriot.com. Uh, if you have a moment, please review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us. We love to hear from you. You can find us online. Uh, Where can they find you, Jen? You can find me on Twitter and Tumblr as Jen IRL. That's Jen with two N's, IRL. And you can find me on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And you can find me on Instagram at Williams. That's S-C-A-I-N-A-B Williams. And until next time, 